0: Religion is humanity's response to the violence inherent in our lives. I'll say that again. Religion is humanity's response to the violence inherent in our lives. In the early days of our rise to consciousness, killing was a critical part of our daily activities. We killed to acquire protein to sustain our growing brains, we killed to acquire and protect scarce resources such as water and salt. We killed to expend, to expand our gene pool beyond the edges of our own tribe. And yet it seems killing left us unsettled. For, that, for some reason, not then well understood, the taking of a life left us feeling uncomfortable, unbalanced. And so we developed religion to help us regain our balance. This is a theme that James Carroll develops in his book, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He writes, the connection between religion and violence, embodied in rituals that have their origin in bloody sacrifice, only lays bare the foundational fact of the human condition, which is that people live by killing Religion is how people make sense of such necessary violence, even at the risk of exacerbating it. Religion is how, in fact, people attempt to restrict violence only to what is necessary, even if religion sometimes brings about the opposite. Sacrifice is the invention that aims to make sense of and to restrict violence. The words of James Carroll. And so Abraham, in our story this morning, coming from a tradition where sacrifice of the firstborn was not uncommon, especially when times were particularly hard, he responded when he heard the voice of God command him to sacrifice Isaac. He took Isaac to the land of Moriah and climbed the mountain that God ascribed, and he prepared to kill his only son. And when he had Isaac on that pile of wood and had him tied down and he raised that blade to penetrate his body, God said, wait, 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 wait. No, 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 this ain't right. The fact that you are willing to do this is demonstration enough of your faith. Don't kill your son. Look, there's a ram over in the bushes. Go kill that and we'll be good, all right? We can take this episode as the beginning of the end of human sacrifice for religious purposes. It's significant to me that this story is told not only in the Jewish and Christian traditions, but also in the Muslim tradition. Of course, in Islam, it's Ishmael, not Isaac. Either way, it is a significant point in religious practice that we stopped Killing our children. Indeed, although um, many comment on the violent nature of the Hebrew Bible, we can discern over time a progressive diminishing of violence as part of religious practice. And the question I have in my mind is is that diminishment of a result of God changing His nature? her nature or is it a is it a function of us becoming more aware of god's needs so by the time jesus comes around sacrificing animals has become almost routine not so much a matter of making personal connection to god as a matter of of, of sustaining the religious powers that be the sacrifice of animals was embedded in the culture of the temple jesus demonstrates his disgust by throwing the sellers of sacrificial animals out of the courtyard of the temple later that week later in that passover week the powers the religious powers reassert themselves culminating in what christians consider the ultimate act of religious violence in the crucifixion of Jesus. And this event finally and fully exposes the fact that violence is not a requirement from God, but the work of humans seeking their own profane power. Carol writes, this is the violence of the death of Jesus. Like the violence of Scripture generally exposes the great deception that God in any way wills Violence. Regarding violence, there is no ambivalence in God. Ambivalence about violence, violence to stop violence, is wholly human and undivine. Sacred violence is therefore a contradiction in terms. In the people Israel and in Jesus, God has all alone, all along, been exposing God's own rejection of violence. End quote. And yet we come to this day, in the 21st century, where we insist that killing is still God's will. That putting criminals to death is morally justified. That waging war against non-Christians is justified by the horrific acts of a few men. Indeed, today, in the 21st century, we justify mothers taking their children into toy stores while carrying assault weapons. We seem to be unable to distinguish between having rights and acting right. So I'm gonna gonna shift gears here, just hold on to that for a moment. A few weeks ago I was engaged in an online conversation as I am wont to do, just to stir up the muck every once in a while. I had followed a Facebook link to a blog site called um, Think Progress. The article was about the governor of Indiana who was refusing to implement a federal program to eliminate rape in prisons. Apparently the good people of Indiana can't afford such a program. Well, if you want to ring my bell these days, violence and prisons will get you the double clapper. My comment used a uh, verse from the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus says, And you do not for the least of these, you do not for me. Apparently I rang someone else's bell because one person responded that as a progressive, I want to keep religion out of the secular realm. And therefore, I am disqualified from quoting scripture. I was prohibited in this commenter's mind, from making a religious reference to how we treat each other because I was speaking in favor of a progressive argument. Never mind that the incidents of rape are rising in American prisons. Never mind that treating prisons inhumanely is specifically called out in the words of Jesus. As a matter of fact, this commenter said nothing at all to the matter at hand, only that progressives have no right to quote the Bible. And this brings us to the topic of this morning's sermon. Where is the liberal religious voice in the public realm? Why, when religious sources are queried, do the media always go to the unyielding voices of radically conservative Christians? And what does it mean to be a religious liberal anyway? In his book, uh, Reclaiming Prophetic Witness, Paul Razor writes that a religious liberal is one who incorporates all of the learning and discovery that humans have accomplished into their search for truth and meaning. So even though we find truth in the writings that have come down to us in the Bible, in Christian scripture, in the Quran, Buddhist texts, Hindu scripture, even though we continue to find truth in all of that, We are not stuck in any of it. If religion represents a stake driven into the moral ground, conservatives tend to seek its safety by tethering themselves closely to it. Liberals, on the other hand, are content with keeping the stake in sight as we graze a field. We open ourselves to the possibility that there is so much more available down the avenues of research and discovery that we are compelled to widen our understanding. To paraphrase William Ellery Channing, God gave us minds. He expects us to use them. One of the problems that liberals have with bringing religious voice into the public square, as my commenter noted, is that we are adamant about keeping church and state separate. This trips us up, I think, because no matter how we try to separate the two in the world, they still merge together when we, when we consider them with one mind. The Constitution prohibits Congress from passing any law that establishes a state religion or interferes with religious practice. In essence, what it does is it keeps separate the powers of government, which are founded on fear and violence, and the powers of religion, which are founded on love and peace. Now, I say this because government is the entity we turn to when we seek to deploy the legitimate use of violence. And religion is where we go when we seek the power of love to transform our world from a place of violence to a place of peace. These powers were separated in the public space by our founders because they had seen how abusive the church could become when it was empowered with the legitimate use of violence. Conflating religion and government confuses public policy by, con- by confusing peace with violence. But as individuals, we bring only one mind to bear. So we must find a way to reconcile public policy empowered by violence with religious belief empowered by love. And we do that by using our religious beliefs and principles to develop an ethical standard which informs our positions on public policy. In the Unitarian Universalist Church, it is laid out by the seven principles of our faith. As Reverend Barbara Wells Tenhove explains, the principles are not dogma or doctrine, but rather a guide for those of us who would choose to join and participate in Universalist, Unitarian Universalist religious communities. And Doug Muter writes in the UU World that Unitarian Universalism is a commitment to envision a world in which the principles have become true. To envision it so intensely. And in such detail that it becomes a genuine possibility, and to join with others in making that possibility real. Since our principles are not a creed or a dogma, but rather a vision of the world we aspire to, it is often difficult to articulate where we stand, as you use. But as one 19th century wag put it, when asked where universalists stand. He said, we don't stand, we move. Yet the common understanding of religion as a stake in the ground to which all moral and ethical decisions are tethered has dominated the public dialogue for the past 40 years. The liberal desire to keep separate church and state has inhibited the liberal religious voice in policy debate. Razor writes, to say that liberal prophetic practice is protected by the First Amendment is not the end of the story. Some may object that, although this practice is legal, we should refrain lest we unwittingly contribute to the already weakening church-state separation. However, true prophetic practice that speaks from the depth of theological tradition and refuses to identify itself with a particular political authority has a positive impact on religious freedom. It simultaneously depends on and supports the democratic traditions of freedom of dissent and church-state separation. By fulfilling its justice-seeking role, prophetic activity helps preserve the social and political space on which these traditions depend. In other words, public prophetic religion, including liberal prophetic practice at its best, strengthens rather than undermines the separation of church and state. The words of Paul Razor. If we are to have a reasonable debate among those who are profoundly concerned about the fate of humankind, and not just the fate of a nation or an ideology, then we must engage the arguments of the day with all of our religious power. So I want to spend the last part of this sermon with a simple demonstration of how we might use our prophetic witness to put an end to violence. On the insert in your order of service are three lists. As you use, we are devoted to rationality, so I thought offering some lists might help bring some order to this jumble of ideas. The UU principles are the first. The other two are lists that are developed by different groups for the purpose of bringing peace to both international and interpersonal relationships assuming we agree that peace is a laudable goal and that we need to reach out to our leaders and our neighbors in order to achieve peace these lists give us something concrete things to do as well as religious basis for our actions the just peace list comes from glenn stassen's 1992 book just peacemaking stassen draws heavily from the sermon on the mount to derive this list of actions that offer an alternative approach to international relations from the traditional real politique that we have become comfortable with. If we look closely, we may see some of these steps being deployed in our current foreign policy, although military might is still the biggest stick in the room. The transforming power list comes from the Alternatives to Violence project a prison project developed with the help of Quakers in New York State in 1975. These 12 tools are designed to help individuals who when recognizing an escalating conflict will act to steer the situation away from violence. These are three guides that I use when I think about the need to eliminate violence in our culture. Each would be sufficient on its own But an argument that is both both personal and global is greatly empowered by a religious foundation. For example, in Transforming Power, item number four says, Base your position on truth, since people tend to seek truth, and no position based on falsehood can long prevail. It's common for incidents to escalate to violence because one party or another has a misunderstanding of the true circumstances. In a particularly volatile environment like a prison, it can be as simple as sitting at the wrong table during a meal. Someone new to the prison may not understand the seating protocols, and one who sits with a group regularly might take an outsider's mistake as a sign of disrespect. By speaking truth, escalation can be mitigated and violence prevented. Just peace invites us to work for truth in groups. Decisions made in secret, policies that are not visible to the general public, prohibitions of groups working to bring light to government policy, these all support the tendency of governments to hide the truth in order to perpetuate their own power. By having groups outside the government work on exposing truth, all citizens can then make informed decisions that can lead to a common goal of peace. If governments are not serving the interests of their citizens, these truth-seeking groups are necessary to expose deception and mendacity. Each of these strategies has its own merit. And each may seem like an idealistic approach to the problem. However, when we hold as religious a covenant to engage in a responsible search for truth and meaning, then we become empowered, both as individuals and as groups, to take risks that we may not otherwise have taken. You can find a more fully developed application of UU principles to the to uh, peacemaking by looking up the statement of conscience, the statement of conscience on creating peace that was approved by General Assembly in 2010. It's on the UUA website, and I invite you to look through the list and see if you can find other similarities. But it's not enough to simply engage in these activities. It's not enough to simply speak publicly to our desires and dreams. By tying our public policy desires to a religious foundation, we begin to raise the liberal religious cause in public debate. As Razor writes, religious liberals need to reclaim our share of the public space. There is more to this than adopting resolutions and making public statements, of course. Public witness also takes... takes place through forms of direct action such as demonstrations, vigils, protests, and other ways. But whatever the setting for specific prophetic practices, the liberal religious basis for, understand, for undertaking them must be clearly and publicly named. Given the public dominance of conservative religious voices today, if religious liberals don't speak up, no one else will know that there is another religious perspective End quote. Religion is humanity's response to the violence inherent in our lives. It is no longer an unsettled feeling we have when we take a life. It is the imperative that we must live to on both a personal and a global level if we are to survive. And we meet that imperative with prophetic voices with a liberal faith founded on the promise of understanding through reason and the hope of transformation through love. It is the vision of unique individuals living in peaceful community, seeking truth and meaning together. And may it ever be so.